Welcome to the Prospector Podcast, a bi-weekly production bringing you the minor perspective. Hello, miners, and welcome back to the special 2020 presidential election edition of the Prospector Podcast. It's Tuesday, November 3rd, and the election is finally here. So, in honor of the occasion, at the end of the podcast, I'll be sharing with you all a conversation that I had last week with first-time voter Miriam Ragheb. She's a 21-year-old UTEP student who received her citizenship earlier this year after a four-year-long immigration process. But before that, we'll hear a story from Anaí Diaz, then in review with Daniel Alec Lopez, and finally Michael Cuviello with the Minor Sports Nugget. But first, here's a recap of some of the top stories uploaded on our website, theprospectordaily.com, in the last two weeks. In news, El Paso County begins a shutdown of non-essential services for two weeks. In entertainment, the El Paso Museum of Art hosts virtual activities for Day of the Dead. And in sports, a surge in coronavirus cases in El Paso has led to the cancellation of the UTEP football game against North Texas. You can read all of these stories and more by visiting theprospectordaily.com. Boteria, an El Paso-themed version of the popular Mexican game Loteria, is bringing local issues and elections to the table. The 54 cards and 10 boards replace the traditional Loteria images like La Dama, the Lady, and El Catrín, the Gentleman, with El Voto, the Vote, or El Soñador, the Dreamer. The best way to sort of convince a person to vote, and we know this through years of research, is is not just a phone call from a stranger, right? It's literally your friends and your family your you know your co-workers talking about the issues and having a, a, a pathway to understand how it's connected to your vote that's Melida Stlan, the network weaver for el paso equal voice network or evn the creators of voteria and a local network working on issues like border rights environmental justice and voter engagement people can sit down and literally play this game with their family, friends, co-workers, church, and like learn why these issues are important. Some specific issues portrayed on the game cards include La Destrucción, the destruction, featuring an image in the Duranguito neighborhood in El Paso, a historic space in the city that has been in constant threat of being replaced for a multi-million community arts center. Another card highlights the femicides in the El Paso-Juarez border region with Fue Feminicidio, It Was Femicide. The illustration pays homage to feminist artist and activist Isabel Cabanillas, who was killed in Juarez on January 18. Cabanillas actively spoke out against the systemic and historical violence of women in Mexico. But we're putting them on the table, literally. We're putting our issues on the table so that people get involved inspired, right, to do something. The network distributed their Voteria game to the first 100 registered EVN members, while also including personalized voting merch like a bag and a t-shirt, with the goal of encouraging people to vote on November 3rd. And voting is only a piece of the puzzle. For many of us, you know, freedom is yet to exist, right? But the threat of losing our democracy or a sense or ability to create a democracy 
losing our ability to create freedom, to create peace, to create dignity, um, that's definitely at risk. Ana Diaz, Prospector Podcast. This is Daniel Alcopez with In Review. For today's segment, I will be reviewing the documentary 915. 915 was directed by Charlie Min. He is known widely for his films that are shot in Mexico and throughout Texas. Despite his moderate success, Min is somewhat of a controversial figure that has a habit of rubbing salt into wounds. Critics have pointed out he can sometimes ask too many questions about the same topic or that he tends to put out the wrong message entirely. The documentary is about the massacre that occurred on August 3rd, 2019 at a Walmart in El Paso, Texas, when a gunman killed 23 people. The survivors in this documentary tell their side of the story and what they witnessed and experienced during the attack. They also share how it affects them today. I give this documentary a 4 out of 5 picks. This film was well made, and the shots were well done to give the audience a point of view from inside the Walmart. The interviews were also well done. Viewer discretion is advised, as there are some gruesome scenes throughout the film. It includes a lot of cell phone footage captured by the witnesses inside Walmart during the actual shooting. You could just feel the survivors' emotions in this documentary as they were describing what had happened to them and the feeling of losing a loved one. The message that the director is sending is clear, that there is a problem with racism and how people are viewed as a lesser class simply due to their skin color. In my view, there are certain parts that should have not made the final cut. Certain moments can add fuel to the fire, giving people ideas that may cause more harm than good. This documentary is about awareness, but can also be poison as well. Since this is also not the first time a tragedy has happened because of racism and hate, in my strongest opinion, I do not recommend you watch the film at this time because the tragedy is still fresh on a lot of people's minds and it can be harmful for those who are still healing. This has been Daniel Alcopez with In Review. This is Michael Cuviello, UTEP Prospector Sports Editor, and this is the Minor Sports Nugget. For the second time this season, the UTEP Minor football team had a football game canceled due to COVID-19 concerns. The October 31st game against North Texas University was canceled on Tuesday by North Texas. They cited a spike in El Paso's coronavirus cases as the cause. Previously, the University of Southern Mississippi canceled its game against El Paso due to multiple players on its team testing positive for the virus. Currently, El Paso has peaked in its COVID-19 cases with almost daily records for highs in new cases. As of this recording, El Paso had 1,347 daily new cases and over 15,000 active cases. ICUs in El Paso hospitals were being maxed out with 232 at this time and also had 939 people hospitalized due to COVID-19. The total active cases in the Sun City exceed over 20 total states cases for their entire population. North Texas University president said in a news release that he was worried about his athletes' health and safety due to the COVID El Paso outbreak. Not since August has UTEP announced that any football players have tested positive for COVID-19. During the month of August, UTEP had a total of six football players test positive during practices that were also asymptomatic. Since the season started, UTEP has not announced any failed COVID tests. North Texas 
had three positive tests within its athletic department just on October 26, including one athlete, most likely a football player. UTEP Athletic Director released a statement after the North Texas cancellation announcement. Student-athlete infections have been nearly non-existent due to their diligence in following the recommended safety protocols and the frequency of testing. While we believe that our department and our fans have followed all the best practices to ensure a safe experience, the disease is at very high levels around us. We understand El Paso's desire to encourage people to stay home this weekend. UTEP President Heather Wilson also released a statement addressing the canceled game. She said, We are disappointed that North Texas has chosen not to come to El Paso for the football game this weekend. We have a safe place to play and no players who are sick are in isolation. And North Texas has not indicated that any of their players are ill. We made the decision earlier today not to allow fans in the stadium. Wilson also continued, We are proud of the diligence that our student-athletes, coaches, and staff have shown to put us in a position to play each and every week. We look forward to further discussions with Conference USA and North Texas on whether or when this game will be rescheduled. To further complicate the issue, El Paso County Judge Ricardo Samaniego has ordered a two-week shutdown for the city of El Paso and recommended that residents of the county stay home if possible. The Texas Attorney General, Ken Paxton, is hotly contesting Samaniego's order as unconstitutional and not valid. This order has no power over school districts, collegiate, or professional sports, so those individual entities will have to make those decisions on their own. The Canatulu, El Paso, and Socorro school districts have suspended play for the next two weeks, while UTEP made an early week decision not to have fans present at the North Texas football game before its cancellation. At this time, UTEP has a home game scheduled for November 7th against Conference USA opponent, Florida International University. Florida International University also had last weekend's game against Marshall canceled due to COVID-19 concerns. Florida International had to call off the game due to a lack of available scholarship players due to positive tests. Florida International also has had one other game canceled this season against Charlotte for similar reasons. So with the current state of infection in the El Paso region and Florida International's current level of athletes testing positive, there's a very distinct possibility that the game could be in serious jeopardy of not being played this coming weekend. Conference USA recently pushed back its championship game to allow an additional two weeks for use for postponed games. Divisional games will be a priority, so the Florida International game will likely not be rescheduled if it is canceled. Both North Texas and Southern Mississippi are divisional opponents, so those games will be the priority to be made up. With the continued improvement of the UTEP football team, Further postponement or cancellations would be quite a disappointment for the coach and his players. Unfortunately, the current pandemic has only worsened as the year has gone on for the El Paso region and many sections of the country. We are currently experiencing a much higher level of infection and hospitalization than we have at any point of the pandemic, so much remains in limbo still. As it stands now, the season could be very much in jeopardy if infection rates do not subside in the region. At this point, there are way more questions and answers for El Paso and the UTEP football team. This has been Michael Cuviello, and this has been the Minor Sports Nugget. Thank you for joining me. So tell me about your story, like your voting story, how, um, you know, this, I guess this is your first time voting. Um, is this your first time voting, like, period, or just in general election? No, like, ever. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so tell me what that process was and how you're able to 
um, vote now? So I became a citizen in, I think it was July or August, I, I believe. Um, and uh, pretty much when, when we all got sworn in, one of the first things that the kind of immigration official told us was like, please go register to vote. And I was like, absolutely, don't even worry about it. And so I came home and I instantly like looked up how to do it because obviously I had no idea what I was really supposed to do. Um, so I Googled it, printed the form, sent it in, um, and then was like anxiously waiting for like the card to come in because I was like, I need it, I need to see it. I need to see it in my hand. Um, and then I got my voter registration card, I think it was in probably September or like late August, early September. Um, and then I obviously started like kind of Googling cause I know that um, the presidential election isn't the only, like they're not the only people up for election. And so I was kind of looking up the um, El Paso ballot and kind of seeing, okay, who was on the ballot, who was running for election, who was running for re-election. Um, that way I, you know, knew who I was, I was voting for, because obviously on the, the polling, in the polling machines, it says like Democrat or Republican or independent or green, but I still wanted to know like what their policies were and who was essentially running to be reelected and, and that sort of thing. Um, yeah, that's pretty much it. Right. So why don't you tell me like some of the qualities that you're looking for, like um, in certain candidates, how you said you were looking to see, you know, what these candidates are platforming. So what are some of the things that are important to you as a voter? Um, obviously, immigration is number one for me. I obviously being an immigrant, I understand how just how difficult it is, not even just to get your basic papers, but to eventually get citizenship. And I think that a lot of people who haven't experienced it and don't understand what the process is like kind of have this warped idea of, oh, it's, it's so easy. Just apply for your citizenship and then you're fine. You're golden. And that's really not how it works. Um, so immigration reform and everything that's pretty much related to that and abolishing ICE, obviously, everything that has to do with that is really like close to home for me. So that's number one. Um, number two is um, women's rights and access to um, abortion, access to healthcare, everything that pretty much promotes equality because obviously I am a woman. <laughs> um, and then the third is healthcare because we're still in a pandemic. And I mean, even before the pandemic, access to healthcare is a nightmare. Um, and fortunately for me, I'm lucky enough to live in a family where my dad's a doctor. So getting healthcare isn't that difficult because there's kind of a loophole. But I obviously know that that puts me in a, some position of privilege and that a lot of people don't have that privilege. And so get, even just seeing a doctor can be such a nightmare. Um, so I would say those those are probably the top three things. And then so diving into like your background a bit, um, can you tell me like your immigration story? Um, how, how that came about? Yeah, so um, my parents are both Egyptian and I was born in Egypt. Um, 
and then they brought me to the U.S. when I was about one and a half or two. Um, I really don't have like a whole lot of memories from then because obviously I was really small, but um, and then we kind of moved around a lot, you know, and I think as a kid, you don't really realize the kind of distinctions between like being a citizen or being on a visa or being this or being that. And so when I was younger, I always saw myself as American because I was like, I live here. What else would I be? Um, and then when I started high school, we actually moved to Dubai and that whole that kind of process made me more aware of like how visas work and how um how even if you're immigrating somewhere like temporarily it it's like a whole thing and it becomes very difficult because sometimes things go wrong and they're like you have to leave the country for two hours and then come back and it becomes a whole thing and um Obviously, before we moved there, I, me, my mom, and uh, actually, no, just me and my mom were both on green cards because my sister was born here and my dad got naturalized. And so when we finally came back to the U.S. after I graduated from high school, we had a really uncomfortable encounter with an immigration agent who pretty much... Um, like I won't dive into the whole thing, but he pretty much threw our green cards in our faces and said, they're gonna send you back to Egypt. And I said, what? What do you mean? I can I live here, what are you talking about? Where are they gonna send me? Um, and we pretty much had to go into additional screening where essentially they question you for three hours and you have to prove, you have to prove that you actually live there and you have to prove your bank records and your house records and your student records and everything and it was just such an anxiety inducing and uncomfortable experience that when we finally came back we were like we need to get our citizenship and we need to get it now because if we don't get it now this is just going to be a situation that we're always going to be in um and so that was august of 2016 and I, me and my mom eventually got our citizenship August of 2020, so. It took you guys four years, yeah. That's crazy. And I would, I would wanna ask you, um, how much of the, you know, the whole process and all the anxiety that you've had, how much of that would you attribute to, you know, the Trump administration and how they've handled immigration? I definitely think that it bleeds into it. I I don't, I mean, obviously, I don't know how each individual immigration agent feels about, you know, people who are from Arab countries or people who are from South American countries. Like, I don't know what their personal beliefs are, but it just seemed like the attitudes that they have are so much like, I'm going to instill fear in you and I know you can't do anything about it. Because, you know, if somebody's threatening to send you back to a country that you haven't lived in ever, that's terrifying because it's literally like, I'm going to pull you out of somewhere that you call home and I'm going to throw you somewhere else because I don't think that you belong here. And it wasn't until after that experience that I, you know, did some research and I actually realized that what he did was 
illegal. You can't tell somebody with a green card that they can't enter the country. Um, but obviously at, you know, 17, I didn't know that. I thought, oh, well, guess I have to say goodbye to my life. Um, and so I think that a lot of the Trump administration's rhetoric about immigrants in general and then in specifically like people from Muslim countries, like obviously one of the first things he did when he came into office was enact a Muslim ban. And that obviously messed with the whole immigration system because you had people who were coming in from places like Iran and Sudan and all these other places who were suddenly being told you can't come back. Like you're stuck there, you have nowhere else to go. And it's, it's just blatantly racist and you can tell it's blatantly racist. Like I even, when I get on a plane, like from state to state, I get looked at because of my last name. Like they're kind of like, oh, never seen that name before. And you know, I, at this point, I feel like I just have to deal with it. But I mean, now, at least now that I have an American citizenship, I'm like, well, you can't threaten to deport me anymore. So you can look all you want. <laughs> yeah. What was it like in the four years that you were waiting for the whole process? Um, what were some of the, the anxieties that you had to deal with day to day, um, if you had any? Honestly, it was a lot. Most of the anxiety honestly came from like the preparation process because you have to bring all your travel documents every single time you've left the country, every single time you've entered the country, you have to bring all your driving records, your bank records, like just having to literally compile your whole life and give it to a lawyer so that they can organize it and be like, okay, so, you know, and, and the, the weird thing was it's, it's almost like a coaching process because even they know that the immigration officials are going to try and trip you up. It's like, I remember our immigration agent was kind of like, um, you know, make sure that when you're answering questions, don't sound like you're unconfident about them because they're going to take note of that. And they'll understand if you're a little bit anxious or you're a little bit squeamish, that sort of thing. So that was really anxiety inducing. And then, um, Obviously, government government buildings are just anxiety-inducing in general because they're very, they're very pale. They're very like it just it's an uncomfortable experience. And then, like the interview process was just honestly really uncomfortable. Um, they had to interview me and my mom separately, obviously because I'm an adult now, so they can't just take us both at the same time. Um, they tried to accuse my mom of being in Switzerland two years ago, and she was like, how would I have gone to another country without a visa? And they were like, well, it just says here in our system that you went to Switzerland. And she was like, I don't, I don't know what that is. And essentially, instead of admitting that they made a mistake, which I still think was a deliberate mistake, um, they said, okay, well, you have to prove that you weren't in Switzerland on whatever, May 5th, 2017 or something. And she was kind of like, okay. And then for me, it was 
more of an uncomfortable experience because they essentially said, well, your dad was naturalized before you turned 18, correct? And I was like, yes, that's correct. And they were like, well, you're already a citizen, so I don't know why you're here. And I was like, because no one told me that. There's no, where am I supposed to go where somebody's telling me, oh, if your parent is naturalized before this age. And um, the lady was really rude. And she was like, well, you just wasted a bunch of money. I was like, cool. Thank you very much for that information. Um, so then I had to go and file a whole different section of paperwork. So, and obviously it's just like waiting for that decision of them being like, okay, yeah, you're good. It's almost like not worth all the anxiety because it's literally a letter with like two sentences on it and that's it. Wow, that's that's insane. It's almost like they intentionally make it so difficult for somebody to become a citizen here. Going through all of that, and now, you know, you're a citizen, you can vote in this election. What does this this election mean to you? It's, I almost feel like it's just a matter of dignity at this point, because I, I remember the 2016 election and I was so, I guess I was so naive and I was like, there's no way that they're going to elect Trump. I was like, there's no way. This isn't going to happen. This is a joke. And then it happened and I just cried and cried and cried because I was like, I don't know what's going to happen now. Like, this is ridiculous. And I feel like I have like some like lingering PTSD from that experience because I... I don't want to go through that again. I'm like, there's, after everything that's happened, if he gets reelected, I'm like, what does that mean? What does that mean for everybody in this country who hasn't benefited from not only his politics, but his rhetoric? Because he just seems to attack anybody who isn't a straight white cis male. And... I feel like the majority of Americans who care about what's going on are not straight white cis males. So it it makes me really, really nervous for kind of just the future of our country because I'm like, if we could sit here and let him get elected and God forbid, let him get reelected, then what does that say about us as a country? Right. Um, I guess that was all the questions that I had for you. Um, I was just really interested in hearing about like your, you know, your thoughts on, you know, it's your first time voting and like this is, you know, one of the the biggest elections, I think, in our history. There's a lot riding on it now. And, um, you know, it's still kind of up in the air as far as what's going to happen. I mean, a lot of the polls are showing Biden, you know, in the lead, but we know how that worked out last election. And so it's kind of very, it's too soon to like call anything and I don't want to like jinx it, you know, <laughs> but um, <laughs> no, I just wanted to hear about like your story and, and how important this election is for you. Is there anything else that you, any closing thoughts? 
I I just really hope that people understand that this election isn't about you as an individual. And I think a lot of people overlook that. I think people think that, oh, well, you know, if who, no matter who wins, like I've been hearing a lot of people say like, no matter who wins, we're screwed. And I'm like, but we're not really. Because it's like, you know, Biden has done and said some questionable things, and I acknowledge that. But he is the most qualified person that we have available for the job. And I'm like, when people say that, like, oh, it doesn't matter who wins, or I don't really care, or that sort of thing, I'm like, okay, well, you're just thinking about about yourself. Because to you, it doesn't matter. But you're not thinking about people you're not thinking about anybody else. And I, I think that that, like that and the fact that we're in a pandemic really like ties together because there are also people who are like, well, I don't feel like wearing a mask, so I'm not gonna wear a mask. And I'm like, it's not about you, it's about everybody. And it's about kind of just the greater good and what's riding on the future of our country because our country can't just go up in flames and have us sit here and toast marshmallows on it you know we have to elect people who are going to at least understand the qualifications of the job and understand that they have a duty to serve us and not somebody who's gonna sit up on a pedestal and be a self-centered narcissist and just say whatever he wants because he can so i just think that it's really important that people vote and vote correctly and understand what's going on and like just overall have compassion because that's one thing that I think Trump, his supporters and the administration just doesn't have, it's compassion. Thank you for joining us on this week's episode of the Prospector Podcast. Tune in next time for an all new Minor Perspective.